Hello, my name is Fez Geelan. Welcome to Platinum Ranch, episode 13. I'm sorry it's been so long. The song you're hearing right now is called Save the Planet, Kill Yourself by Reverend Chris Corda. Reverend Chris Corda is a musician, visual artist, software engineer, activist, but is probably best known for being the leader of the Church of Euthanasia. The Church of Euthanasia was founded in 1991 in Boston, Massachusetts. The church's one and only commandment is thou shalt not procreate. The church was inspired by a dream in which an alien visited Chris Corda and said the following. Greetings. We are not of this planet. We do not understand your strange customs, your planet's ecosystem is failing, your leaders deny this, explain, your leaders deny this. When Reverend Corda awoke from the dream, she was moaning what would eventually become the church's infamous slogan, save the planet, kill yourself. Other slogans employed by the church include human extinction while we still can, eat a queer fetus for Jesus, fetuses aren't people, they aren't even chickens, who cares? We are the veal. Now before we carry on with the show, I'd like to give a quick heads up to listeners. In this episode of Platinum Ranch, we will be talking about suicide. If you don't want to hear that, I recommend you do not listen any further. Now, I'm going to pass it over to Jerry Springer, who spoke to Chris about the four pillars of the Church of Euthanasia. Four things that you believe in. What are the basic tenets of your philosophy? We're going we're to get to the four pillars of the church euthanasia. You already know what they are. They're well, suicide, abortion, yeah, cannibalism, and sodomy. Wait a second. Say that again. Suicide, suicide abortion, 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 cannibalism, cannibalism and, sodomy. and sodomy. That's right. And we're going to explain a, every one of them in uh, great this detail. This is a here. faith? This is, this, this, is a, this is an organized religion. And this has okay. to do with environmentalism? Yes, it does. And we're going to explain sure it in does. great this detail. This isn't recycling cans. You're talking That's about right. suicide. It's funny you should mention that. It's funny you should mention that. Okay, look what you said on the air. This is what you said. I'm quoting you. Okay, this is, Reverend, Jerry, this is what me. you said on the air. You said this in L.A. in a radio address, and I'm quoting. If you are depressed or ill or feel burdened by today's world problems, let me suggest a way to give your life new meaning. Kill yourself. Do it now if you have a gun, razor, whatever. You're telling me. Okay. You're telling me Listen that's going to gonna make the... Jerry, we're talking about an all-out industrial assault on the planet. How does that give your life new meaning if you take your life? Okay, there's no meaning Let's now. talk a little bit about this. Hi, Chris. Uh, thank you for speaking with me, first of all. I realize it's been a while since you've done an interview. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't interact with the public anywhere near as much as I did. For a while there, I was doing it every day, and uh, I got pretty practiced at it. You might say I learned my lines. It was a little like being a politician or being a reverend is a lot like being a politician in the sense that the main thing that you have to do is remember people's names, or it sure helps. And you you know kind of have to put people at ease and uh, interact with crowds and be a forceful public speaker and give an impression of uh, command over your topic. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily, it's not like being a politician in the sense that you want to fool people, which is unfortunately what politicians do. Uh, you might argue that their main skill is telling 10 different people 10 different things, but making it sound like you agree with all of them. Telling people exactly what you've determined they want to hear. But so I don't do anything like that. I mostly tell people things that they don't want to hear. And that's a big difference. And so why did you decide to sort of move away from the public eye? Uh, yeah, it was a little overexposed, I think, at one point. It became physically much too dangerous. Uh, and also the times changed. At the time when the church was the most uh, publicly active in the late 90s and early aughts, um, it was a different world. 9-11 uh, changed a lot of things, but there was so much more change coming. Today, I think that if we tried to do anything like what we did then, uh, it would be lethal. I, I would... You know, I would be doxxed, I would be beaten up, killed. Um, you know, anything that's different is suddenly very dangerous. This often happens. I mean, if we look back at the history of fascism, uh, this is how it works, right? Is that fascism is all about conformity. And so to the extent that somebody's non-conforming, right, that 
um, that's a test of how politically liberal the times are. And right now the times are super not politically liberal. They're very fascistic. And it's very, so consequently, it's very dangerous to be different in a way that it wasn't before. So were you often met with violence when during your demonstrations? Oh, yeah. I mean, in other words, the point is there's an escalating scale of violence and we were somewhere on it. Um, I've certainly been uh, chased, pelted with bottles. Um, I, it, I narrowly escaped um, having my getting some free dental surgery on numerous occasions and mostly only because I had the, the presence of mind to have bodyguards, right? So uh, typically for some of the more drastic church actions, I would have, I would be, it was like running a small army, army right? So the general would be <laughs> in the back. It'd be a, a little crew of, of people standing around around me uh, to make sure that nobody got too close. And that's, you know, that's just normal. I mean, that's how you do things, right? If you're, if you're an experienced operative and you get some experience of working on the streets, you learn how to do it without getting killed. But it, there were certainly lots of close calls, enough close calls to make me um, concerned. There were tons of death threats, of course. People you know, were starting to figure out where I lived and all of that. And I think probably the point when it became really much too dangerous was was um, after a bunch of people actually did kill themselves. That started to bring heat in a different form, not just heat from the police or you know um, from prosecutors and so on. Because there, I think we were on fairly safe ground, certainly no more tenuous than the uh, Hemlock Society. Just distributing information on how to kill yourself efficiently and without any um, uh, harmful effects on anyone else, that's not a crime. But that doesn't mean that you're, that you're immune from civil suits. And so in the cases where people kill themselves uh, following our instructions and then uh, left information, attributing that to us, there's the potential for the family of the deceased to come after us for wrongful death. And that's, that was a real threat too. And so that was um, another reason that it seemed advisable to, to lie low. So at one point you were offering instructions on how to kill oneself. Yep. You know, these are very specific concrete instructions about how to kill yourself with a tank of helium. And you might ask why we picked that. And uh, it's a good question, uh, but you didn't ask it, but I'll answer it anyway. There's a simple test that the Church of Euthanasia used to evaluate suicide methods. It's called the QPCD-SAT test. It's an acronym. Uh, it stands for quick, painless, certain, discreet, safe, accessible, and tidy. Don't forget the tidy. So safe, of course, doesn't mean safe for you. It means safe for others. People sometimes get confused about that. And it's actually very difficult to find a suicide method that passes that test. It's a pretty stringent test. But so anyway, all of this was, was information we distributed, and it led to people killing themselves, and it generated uh, a lot of publicity, as, as you can imagine. It was more or less the idea, right? Uh, and so it was a successful strategy, except that it became too hot. So we backed off because we'd made our point. You know, We didn't need to keep doing it. No need to be greedy. Right. Um, but, I mean, you still had billions to go, right? Well, yeah, but that, that wasn't the point. I mean, there was no question that, you know, we were never, one of the common misnomers about the Church of Euthanasia is people imagined that we set out to actually reduce the human population, but this was always strictly a quixotic goal. Nobody ever, none, nobody who organized this church from the beginning ever really believed that that was going right. to happen. Uh, it's, instead, the deeper goal was to start a conversation about anti-humanism. And in that, we were very successful. I like to argue that... Um, we made anti-humanism a relatively household word at a time when that was simply not the case. So Save the Planet, Kill Yourself was a breakout hit. It absolutely was. I mean, as a bumper sticker alone, hundreds and thousands of those bumper stickers went out. And those were just the ones you know that I know about before people started copying them. It's one of the most widely copied bumper stickers. It's according to Spencer Gist, which was, which was my main distributor. That's like 100 malls across the country right, right off the bat. Or no, 500 malls at the time. It was a huge number. Uh, th there were malls s selling the sticker in suburbia all across the country, and they were just, they couldn't keep them in stock. We were sending them enormous quantities, so many that it became a real nuisance. I mean, it, we, I, had to, I had to hire a special company to print them. We would count them, and they had to be banded into uh, packs of 10. I could remember being like up to my waist in bumper stickers. It was just absurd, the amount of bumper stickers that went out. And so those bumper stickers were quietly changing reality in the sense that there was a cryptic message embedded in that slogan, which, according to Spencer Gist, was right up there with, you know, don't like my driving, dial 1-800-EAT-SHIT. That's, by the way, their all-time bestseller. For, you know, obviously, we were never going to beat that, but we were up there. We were up in the top 10, you know, and so for a little while there, we had it good, and that message was, was just being disseminated everywhere, basically for free, better than for free. We were being paid very well, actually, 30, 35 cents a sticker to disseminate this message. Thank you.
This is Buy More by Chris Corda. so powerful you actually use less. So the, the pillars of the church, um, they're suicide, abortion, cannibalism, and sodomy, right? Uh, now, the first two, it's pretty clear how that um, contributes to the goal of human extinction. What about cannibalism and sodomy? Well, sodomy is clear enough, right? So um, let's just be, let, let's, sodomy is often misunderstood as meaning anal sex, but that's not at all what it means. It has a biblical definition. It's a very old word. Uh, what sodomy strictly uh, means is sex not for procreation. Uh, it often has. Uh, it's often associated with spilling of seed, uh, though it could be associated with homosexuality, for example, in women. Um, it's strictly speaking, it, it's the idea of spilling your seed on the earth, right? Or it, so masturbation is is technically a form of sodomy. This is the this is what sodomy means. So sodomy, of course, is a sacrament in the Church of Euthanasia, not, not just because it's a means to the prime prime directive of non procreation, but because it's symbolic. It symbolizes rejection of the idea that the uh, continual expansion of human numbers is, is, is laudable or, or a, a goal worth having. That on the contrary, it's, it symbolizes the idea, not just that sex could be for pleasure, which is important, but, that's, but that uh, the idea of living within limits begins in the most, in the most fundamental way, with sex. 
that's clear. And then for cannibalism, well, so, you know, um, strictly speaking, uh, vegetarianism and veganism are not required in the church of euthanasia. The idea is that um, it's rather that suggested that if you have to eat flesh, you should eat human flesh. Okay. And, and no suicide. I mean, um, so you mentioned that one of the reasons the church has sort of receded is you guys were receiving death threats. Now, there's some irony there, right? You know, I've told a few people about you and the church, and uh, the first reaction of a lot of people is, well, Chris Corda must be a hypocrite. You know, she's still alive. Obviously, you, you haven't killed yourself. Yeah, yeah. We, this is the oldest church, um, church uh, frequently asked question. And it's not a very interesting question. The real point about this, right, is that, is that it's none of anyone's business, actually, what I do. If I kill myself, I kill myself. If I don't kill myself, I don't kill myself. That's my decision. I get to decide whether that, and you know, I may or I may not. Um, that's up to me to choose the time and place. It's not up to anyone else. And so it's not, it's not even an interesting point. It's, it's the least interesting question you could ask about the church of euthanasia, right? The, there are a hundred other questions you could ask and that would be more interesting. And so this was always the problem with this question is that, is that it makes the person who, in, for a certain kind of person, it makes the person who asks it feel like they're super smart. They can say, oh, oh, oh gotcha. You know, it's a kind of trolling question. It, its pure form is something like, why aren't you dead yet? And the answer is, the, the, the short answer is don't nudge. Of course, they could then say, well, that's what you're doing, right? You guys are encouraging other people to, and to which the answer is, yeah. What's your point in the end? There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to discuss there is the problem. It doesn't lead to anything interesting. It just leads to it leads to a kind of troll fest. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'd like to go back a little bit, talk about the sort of how the church came to be. Now, your first foray into activism was the Unabomber for President campaign. No, no, no. That's not correct at all. No, the church started way before that. The church started in 1991, and it started with "Save the Planet, Kill Yourself." That was the shot fired around the that was heard around the world. Uh, that took off very, very rapidly. Uh, and it led to a whole chain of events. It led to the first church actions, which took place in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Harvard Square, and other places, um, including the, um, there was a participation in an anti-vivisection march, uh, where we marched with a sign that said, kill your fetus, not your pet. That was an early um, kind of practice run for what became a much more elaborate and well-oiled strategy of, attaching ourselves to other larger organizations and especially to their events and using them as a way of surfing to a, to greater public public awareness of our of our aims so for example um, the canonical example of this the most famous example is the fetus barbecue that was much later when the church was already a, a well established organization but so we you could have had a fetus barbecue any other day of the year in the, on the Boston Common, and nobody would have paid much notice. They just would have been a bunch of guys with, you know, with a weird weird signs and, and, and giant banners and a, and a barbecue grill, and some, nobody would have even seen it. And maybe the police would have come by, but they probably not. But to have a fetus barbecue at the same time as the largest pro-life march in New England is a totally different proposition. At that point, you're having a fetus barbecue in front of cardinal law. You understand? Different. That's situationism. The essence of situationism is that time and place matter and that you have to modulate your message according to what the, the immediate audience is, that what will drive one, audi you know, one audience crazy will be ignored by another. And so it's all very specific. You have to know you need intelligence. In fact, there was a whole unit of the church whose aim was to kind of ferret out information about what was going to happen in the future that might be interesting and that might be um, the opportunity for a Dada event, which is what this is. Dada is in the famous uh, art movement of the 1920s, Marcel Duchamp and all that. We, what, we, what we are is neo-Dadaists, right? We use some of the same strategies that the Dadaists evolved uh, back in the 20s uh, to rile up crowds and to uh, communicate in unorthodox ways and to reach a vastly larger audience than they otherwise might have. We use many of those strategies to our benefit and they often involved manipulating other organizations, particularly um, organizations we didn't care for, like, for example, um, right-wing Christians. Right. And so I've heard you describe the church as uh, Dadaist art. And I know you sort of use these um, extreme messages to shock people and start a conversation, right? It's clear. Eat a queer fetus for Jesus is a shocking statement. Even today, if you put that on your car, you might get your windshield broken, right? I was coming up with ways to bend people's consciousness around new ideas that were previously heretical or that may, you know, that that would somehow be inconceivable. Right. 
So, so where, what's the distinction then between um, your sort of shock tactics, your rebel rousing, and then what you actually believe? Like, what, what is just plain shit disturbance and then the message that you actually want to get out there and something you really believe in? Okay, there's a huge difference between the public perception of the Church of Euthanasia and, and, and the intentions of its founders. Save the planet, kill yourself. Let's go back to that. So most people took that at face value. Either they thought, ha ha, that's funny. Like, I'm going to put that on my truck because I'm basically telling everybody to screw off. Or they thought, yeah, I agree with that. We ought to save the planet. But the problem is that the, the statement is a paradox. In fact, the, it wasn't the planet that needs saving. It still isn't. Think about it. If humans were to disappear in an instant, the natural organisms that remained would be more or less covering the whole surface of the earth again within 500 years. If humans press on their current course, it's not, it's not going to be the planet that's destroyed. It's going to be human civilization that's destroyed. The point is that the thing that makes humanity interesting, the part, the part of us that's actually plausibly worth saving, worth even discussing, is not our animalness, because we share that in common with all the other animals who evolved here. The part of us that makes us interesting and special and worth saving is our humanness, which means our civilization which has evolved in a very short time, even compared to our own biological history. We've only had anatomically modern humans for a couple hundred thousand years. But civilization is vastly shorter than that, orders of magnitude shorter than that. The, the history of civilization is mostly the, the last 5,000 years. And since it's exponential, right, you can make a case that the part of it that's really interesting is only the last couple of hundred years. So that's, that's, that's beyond an eye blink. It's almost, from the point of view of the geological timescale of Earth, that is essentially instantaneous. We've gone from being kind of bumbling, overgrown apes to being full-blown full planet dominators in a few hundreds of years. That's interesting, and that's amazing, and it may have terrible consequences, but it is at least um, interesting, and, and the, the good parts of that are arguably worth saving, and that's the post-anti-human church of euthanasia. The post-anti-human church of euthanasia is all about understanding what is special about humans and what's worth saving, and what's worth saving is our rationality, <laughs> our ability to actually comprehend the universe. There may be um, life forms out there that have required our level of understanding of their situation, but we can't prove that now because of the distances involved. We're not going to be able to prove that in any, time, in any amount of time that matters to us. And so for the moment, we have to presume that we are a kind of intelligent scuzz that has evolved on this chunk of rock that's whipping through space at an uh, almost inconceivable speed, and that we are alone alone in a totally indifferent universe. This is what the Hubble telescope makes abundantly clear, right? Is that most of the universe is uninhabitable. And so we're not going anywhere. Rich guys can, you know, transport themselves to the moon and Mars all they want, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. We do not have a life support system anywhere else in the universe at this time, except on Earth. And so we either survive here or we don't. If either way, it's of no relevance to the universe itself. The universe is unaware of our existence and indifferent to our existence. And so to the extent that humans screw up and make Earth uninhabitable for themselves, we're the only ones that matters to. The animals won't care. In fact, for animals, it'll be an improvement. For squirrels, It'll be an improvement for most of those species. They existed before us. They could exist after us too in somewhat reduced conditions and it'll all work out for them. There's no danger of, roach, of roaches going extinct, but there's huge danger of humanity going extinct or at least of human civilization becoming untenable and going extinct. Those are real plausible dangers. And in fact, there's every reason to believe that this is going to happen. That if, if human civilization is still around in 2100, uh, you know, color me amazed, because if ever there were a life form hell-bent on its own destruction, it's got to be human beings. This is Zeal by Chris Corda.
absolutely unrepentant rationalist in the sense that I don't accept that there's any other mode of inquiry that can arrive at real truth other than the scientific method. Anything else is just childishness. It's as simple as that. Like there, we, we have a method for establishing whether something is in fact provisionally true, because if you remember your Karl Popper, you'll know that nothing is actually ever proved true forever. It doesn't work like that. Things are only proved false. And so everything that we consider true for the moment is provisionally true. So gravity is provisionally true. It's the best explanation we've got for the phenomena. Until we see something better, it will do. Science works in a very simple way. It works like this. Every explanation of phenomena is judged by how predictive it is. Nothing else. In order for your explanation to receive any credit, in order for anyone to even be interested in your explanation, it has to be not just repeatable. It has to be not just testable. Much more fundamentally than all of those things, it has to be predictive. And what's worth saving in humanity is that we're capable of actually understanding ourselves. We're capable of understanding the periodic table. We found bacteria, right? We, we, we observed the, 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 the motions of the stars and we're able to understand what they're made of. This is, this is no joke, right? When Einstein said the moon is really out there, he wasn't joking. That's a scientific statement. The moon is out there whether you believe in it or not. You know, and there are cranks who believe that it isn't, perhaps. And certainly in, in prehistory, in, in humans' dark prehistory, people, you know, imagine that the moon was made of cheese or whatever they thought. But, it, but none of that matters. The fact that humans were like, were, were simpletons in the past is not relevant now because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Do you understand? We stand on generations now of brilliant people who gave their lives to chisel out one more little small piece of reality and understand it deeply. And those, the, the, those, those individual uh, journeys, very isolated at first. Remember, before the Renaissance, each scientist essentially worked alone, unable to communicate with other scientists, and in many cases had to repeat the entire infrastructure of science from scratch, starting with the most basic logic and algebra, because there was no way to share information, right? There was no mail. There was no internet. Everybody was on their own. But that's not true anymore. Today, we have Wikipedia. Today, I can, I can trivially look up anything and get to the bottom of it almost immediately. And so today we truly stand on the shoulders of giants. And it's because of this that you have a cell phone in your pocket, not because of childish wishful thinking. Belief is childish. This is the essence of what I'm saying. I don't, I, you know, when I hear that somebody use the word belief, I reach for my revolver. I don't believe anything. I, I gotta say, it surprises me that you have such an affinity for science and scientific progress. I'm a scientist for fuck's sake. I mean, that's what I spent my whole life doing. I'm an engineer. Well, look, if you I mean you think it surprises you that I would be willing to see Earth destroyed in order to preserve human civilization, yes, that is shocking, right? Shock, shocking coming from the from the founder of an anti-humanist organization. It is truly shocking. I agree, and that's why it's the, the post-anti-human church of euthanasia. In other words, I had a real, I had what you what you might call a conversion. I saw something that I didn't see originally, and what I saw is that squirrels are all very well, but squirrels are not ultimately interesting. Sorry, but there's a reason why we don't name them. Not really. There's a reason why we name humans, but we don't, you know, name every squirrel that we ever see. It's not that squirrels don't have rights. We grant them rights. This is the point. Squirrels don't grant us rights. They can't because rights don't exist for them. Now, do you see? The point is that the whole superstructure of human experience and knowledge that allows us even to conceptualize universal rights, even for humans, never mind for non-humans, this is a human thing. Only humans could construct such a thing because only humans have the sufficient um, neurological developments that have allowed us to achieve full self-awareness. And this is the flame worth preserving. And if, if that experiment causes the, causes the destruction of civilization, then so be it. Because what other experiment would you run? The, 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 right. So I argue, the point is that the reason this is causing cognitive dissonance, dissonance for you is because I'm arguing in the anti-humanism manifesto that humanity should exterminate itself precisely because it's capable of feeling guilty for having done all these terrible things. Right. Well, this flame you speak of, I mean, our intelligence has come at the cost of, I mean, like you've said, thousands of species. And yeah, but it's come at a huge cost to us, too. Half of, fully half of the human population right now lives on $10 a day or less. 
a, a solid third of the human population goes to bed hungry every night and is considered absolute poor. Okay, And so you could make a case that human civilization has been a disaster for humans, too. And in fact, this was exactly the Unabomber's point. It wasn't that he was, wasn't concerned about wilderness. He was very concerned about wilderness. But he focused primarily in his manifesto on the impact of, of uh, industrial civilization on humans. Ultimately, his argument boiled down to this. His argument was that industrial civilization might survive, but it could only survive by turning hum human beings into domesticated animals. And that if that, since that was the only way it could survive, that was a reason to destroy it because being a domesticated animal is contemptible and embarrassing and shameful. That he treasured the wildness in humans. He particularly extolled the virtues of frontier life. Frankly, I think that he was very misinformed on this point. But uh, his ideal was something like frontier life in uh, you know, the 18th century or so or before in, uh, in America. When a man could, you know, go out there and clear a piece of land and kill a bunch of animals and chop some wood and build himself a house and... and meet life on his own terms. He considered that very glorious and everything. But I don't. I think that's laughable and absurd. I think that, in fact, much good has come from domesticating humanity. I'm proud of my domestication. I grew up in New York City where everyone is domesticated because you have to be because you live in giant towers on top of thousands and thousands of other people. And your way of life is circumscribed by a billion rules and, and a code of conduct that's very strict and requires everybody to have a specialized uh, job and work, work for the you know, allegedly agreed upon uh, greater goals of our society. I don't, I'm not embarrassed of being a domesticated human. I have served well. I served society. For 35 years or more, I've served society. And I believe in society. I want society to succeed. I don't think it's likely anymore. I think that other more darker forces have gained control and it's very likely that society is going to destroy itself. But society was the only thing I was ever interested in. I, I like to joke around and say people ask me when I'm going to kill myself. It's like this. The day my debit card stops working. You got it? Really? The day the internet goes down? Forget it. You know, I'm not one of these people who's going to go to my luxury survival condo or anything like that. Even if I had one, I wouldn't. I don't believe in that. I know people who are like that. It's very common, actually. It's a common um, pretension in the financial circles, especially financial managers and so on. It's like a, a game that you can play if you have a lot of money and it's kind of fun. You get to learn to use guns and you, know, you have this kind of fantasy of like, you know, you're a super badass and it's going to be like the John Carpenter movie or something. And you're going to you know hoard up all your supplies and go to your special place and then shoot the zombies when the zombies come. It's a lot of bullshit, first of all, because the one thing you can say about the collapse of civilization, right, is that it's going to favor the criminal element. Your hedge fund managers think they can prevail, but they can't because they're not actually practiced enough. In a collapse type civilization, the zombies have the upper hand for sure, because they, they you know, they're. They have years and years of practice at fucking over rubes. So, you, you know, it, it's all like it was all just it was all just fantasy anyway. But my, the point is that even regardless of the fantasy aspect of it, I'm not even interested. I don't want to live in a zombie movie. Everything that I value about being alive comes from society, from civilization, math, books, the Internet, science, the ability to understand my universe, the Hubble telescope. All of these things are products of civilization. I don't want to go back to carrying a case. I don't even like camping. That's disgusting. Like it's dirty. I, I you know what? No hot showers. You got to give me a break. Sorry, but like this is just not. You know, I grew up in New York City, one of the most cosmopolitan places on earth. If there's ever a place anywhere on earth that's committed to the idea of maintaining civilization, right there in the heart of the empire, it's got to be New York. I believe in the empire. The empire is the empire of knowledge. You dig? It's the empire of of man's deepening understanding of his own predicament. And humanity could pass through its current resource bottleneck and become a long-lived species. That's the dream. And if squirrels have to bite it to make that possible, I'm, I'm a fan. Fuck the squirrels. It's low on our list of problems. This is Chris Corda featuring Chicks on Speed with Six Billion Humans Can't Be Wrong. Thank you.
world revolves around me. What I want. I want a cigarette, a beer, a baby, a new car. Throw it away. Where's my lunch? The world revolves around me. Never stop living this way. Six billion humans. Can't be wrong. We'll never stop living this way. Six billion humans. Can't be wrong. We'll never stop living this way. Six billion humans. Can't be wrong. We'll never stop living this way. Six billion humans. Can't be wrong. One world. One shit. So, so civilization is sacred, um, and it's sacred to humans and no one else, and that's that's fine. And who else would it be sacred to? Obviously, it's not sacred to squirrels, right? Squirrels don't even know it exists, right? I mean, they may be aware of its effects. They may think like, hey, there's less acorns around here than there used to be, or, oh, look, they're cutting down my favorite tree or whatever. But in other words, the point is that squirrels aren't going to band together and form a union and lobby Congress. Humans dominate the game. At the moment, we have the killer app, and the killer app is intelligence. 
and our ability to cooperate in large scale projects of altruism, right? Where we create a huge system whose only purpose is to give a helping hand to other humans. That was a tremendous innovation, right? We build roads so that people can get around. The roads don't benefit the person who builds them. The person who builds them is just some guy who works for a huge road building company. Roads fulfill societal aims. So you could make a case that a society is defined by its shared goals. To the extent that it has shared goals which are actually constructive, then there is hope for that society. The society may still get destroyed by, by unknown unknowns, right? It may get destroyed by things that its original shared goals just didn't include or you know, weren't aware of, right? And so the society could be laudable in the sense of having admirable goals, but still bite it for reasons that weren't anticipated. And, and that's in fact exactly what's happening to us. It's not that our society was fundamentally flawed. No, the goals of the French Revolution were right. The French Revolution was a, was a tremendous step forward in progress, and the American Revolution as well. The idea that human beings have intrinsic value was a tremendous uh, progression, a tremendous advance in our, in, in our way of life. In fact, human beings do have intrinsic value. We are, in fact, worth saving. And to the extent that that's codified now in the UN Charter and, and, and in many other places, right, that's real progress. And yeah, there was some backsliding, right? The Holocaust was serious backsliding, and there's been lots of other horrible examples too. But the Civil War was a, was a just cause, right? We fought for the idea that it's not okay to own other humans, that humans can't be property. And so, we are, so we're crawling our way out of the slime in, and becoming actually a somewhat plausibly ethical uh, creature to the point where we even are now having discussions about what rights we should or shouldn't assign to non-humans. Well, that's tremendous progress, right? We're on a long journey of, of, of being more ethically uh, defensible and becoming more advanced, more sophisticated in our way of looking at things. But that doesn't mean that there aren't retrograde forces at work. There most certainly are, the most corrosive, which is greed and inequality. And, and it may be our undoing, but don't, but my point also is don't forget the impact of things that we didn't anticipate, of unknown unknowns. Here's my best example. Are you ready? It's like this. Imagine you're in the 1950s, like, you know, picture Pleasantville or something, that movie Pleasantville or something like that. There you are back in doofus land, right? I mean, McCarthyism. You're a man from the future and you walk around trying to convince people that we shouldn't build the interstate highway system. And we shouldn't you know, have lots of cars and build all these giant suburbs. Why? Because if we do that, we're going to be putting tons and tons and tons of this invisible gas in the air, which is going to fuck up the climate in the future and change the weather and ultimately make Earth uninhabitable. You know what would have happened? Guess. They would have grabbed you off the street, dragged you off to the nearest loony bin and fucking lobotomized you. Right? Nobody would have believed you. They would have said, you're out of your fucking mind. We're not going to build the interstate highway system because you say that this invisible gas is going to do all this stuff. You're crazy. Well, it turned out that you would have been right, but it wouldn't have done you any good back then. And so the point is, there are unanticipated side effects. In this, the Unabomber was absolutely right in saying that the problem, one of the problems, the big problem with civilization is it creates a cascade of exponential unanticipated side effects. And every time we respond to, to some crisis, right, our solution in turn creates new crises. And those are the unintended side effects, which we then have to respond to. And our response to those still create more. And so there's this logarithmically expanding kind of fractal cascade of chaos that we engender. And there's no escaping from that. That's just the price of admission. If you want to do something as bold and as entropic, to, to use a, a big word, as civilization, you have to be willing to take on risk. But that doesn't mean you have to be stupid. So the, my argument against humanity is not so much that we're engaged in a risky enterprise. Of course we are. But it's, a, it's an enterprise worth taking risk for. But that doesn't mean we have to be stupid. Being stupid is like capitalism. Capitalism is just out and out stupid, right? The idea that private avarice engenders the common good, right? This is just plain nutty. This is just not true, right? So we've, we've had decades and decades in which to try and prove that trickle-down economics work, but of course it doesn't work. The idea that we should create a system that basically has its sole purpose is to allow a tiny minority to vastly enrich themselves at everyone else's expense in the short term, totally disregarding the future consequences of their actions. Right? That's just crazy. Of course that'll lead to catastrophe. But the point is that humans could change that. We don't have to have that economic system. I'm not saying that we should have communism or Leninism or Trotskyism or anything else. I'm just saying that we could change that system because it's a human system, right? It's not dictated by biology. It's not like your liver or something. You want to change your liver, you've got big problems, right? Because that's dictated by millions and millions of years of mammalian evolution. 
solution. And, you know, you can't live without your liver. You can't digest food. You can't do anything, right? And you, if you want to build a different one, lots of luck with that. But economic system, shit, economic systems could be, you could build a new economic system in, in a couple of days. And if it's popular, you know, the whole world could agree to it by, by next week. You know, the human systems are extremely ephemeral. They come and go. And so there's no set reason in stone that humans have to use an economic system that's guaranteed to lead to catastrophe. We don't have to. And so we could change our minds. And this is why humanity, this is exactly the kind of reason why humanity is worth fighting for, right? It's because it's actually in play. It's not set in stone that we're going to destroy ourselves. It's just increasingly more and more likely because more and dumber and dumber people are taking control. But if we can manage to reverse that, right? You actually have a chance of, of creating something fantastic and very much worth fighting for. This is the point that I'm really trying to make, is that it's worth fighting for, and the fight is actually in play now. We are currently having a debate today in our society about the specialness of scientific knowledge. We are having that debate. When Trump gets up there and says, you know, that's fake news, or we have alternative facts, right? That's an opportunity to assert that there is no such thing. You're entitled to your own opinion, as, as the senator famously said, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So, so you sound pretty optimistic. How, how can you still align yourself then with the Church of Euthanasia? Because I think they have a point. The point is that the Church of Euthanasia is saying that if humanity can't shape up, right, if we can't manage to somehow coexist with life, then we're anti-life. This is serious business here on Earth. Very, very serious it's taken millions and millions of years of trial and error just to get to this point and believe it, we can completely fuck this up and then it'll be back to squirrels again. But the Church of Euthanasia's point is that that's, that's okay. If that's the way it has to go, then that's how it has to go. And in that case, it should go that way. Of course it's true that squirrels could evolve back into apes and apes could evolve back into humans eventually. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll evolve into something else, something actually smarter than us. One can only hope, right? And either way, even if they do evolve back into us, it won't be our fault because we'll be gone, right? So really, the Church of Euthanasia is about recognizing that humanity is special, but its specialness does not guarantee its survival. You understand? Survival implies coexistence, not just with animals. Forget animals. Think about your gut, man. Think about your insides. What's in your insides? Inside your insides are billions of bugs. There's more bugs inside you than you have cells. You couldn't digest food for an hour without them. As Dawkins put it beautifully, you're basically a convenient container that your commensal bacteria have evolved to get around in because it's a good gig. You know, it beats walking. It's warm in the winter. It has plenty of food. It's a good gig for them. And it's deeper than that. It's, it's like fractal. It's at every level. Your cell, every one of your cells basically evolved its multiple parts from bacteria. And so you coexist with all that stuff. And if you stop coexisting with it, you're dead. You're dead, 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 right? If your cells stop behaving themselves, you get cancer and you're dead. It's all very tenuous and fragile. And it's evolved over you know, millions of years to be the way it is because that way is the right way, because that way keeps entropy about right. We're going to talk about entropy a little bit. See, the point is that you can't have life without entropy. It's the price you pay for doing business. But that doesn't mean you have to fucking maximize it. You could be prudent. Humans so far aren't really you know, showing a lot of joy in prudence, but they used to, actually. Some, you could make a case that when we were more religious, right, we had more of a reverence for prudence, and that was a good thing. One of the good aspects of religion is it gave humans an organizing principle that actually maximized certain highly successful strategies like uh, communality, considering the future, having reverence for life, and you know, especially for agrarian life, and trying to keep things you know, more or less the same so that our, our food would survive and stuff. Those were all good things. You, know, you go back and look at those Gothic cathedrals, right? They stand for something. They stand for a highly ordered way of life. It was a symbol of a way of life in which people didn't have to ask why. They knew why. Everything was done for the glory of God, which basically meant for the continuity of human civilization. We could use some of that right now. If Christians actually stood up for that for a change, I might actually agree with them. We need an organizing principle that actually has a future. And enriching yourself at the expense of everyone else is not that principle, you dig? Like what I'm saying is that the, the death of humanity is not going to be climate change. The death of humanity is neoliberalism. The idea that empowering individual actors to maximize their selfish interest at the expense of everyone else and especially of the future could lead to good things. It won't. It can only lead to disaster. And to the extent that that actually happens, it will be 100% self-inflicted and we, we richly deserve it. And in this sense, I'm completely in tune with the original Church of Euthanasia, right? Which is all about condemnation of human stupidity. Human stupidity is a thing, man. It's a real threat. But so now instead of saying the noble thing for us to do is run toward extinction, you'd like to ride it out and see if we can fix things? 
the truth is the Church of the Nation was, was not primarily a suicide organization, though we certainly um, encouraged it. The prime, you didn't have to commit suicide to join the Church of Euthanasia. You're mischaracterizing something important here. Membership in the Church of Euthanasia involved one thing and only one thing, and it wasn't suicide. Please, for, our, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us what it was? No procreation. Right. You had to take a lifetime vow of non-procreation. And I'm still down with that. I still haven't procreated, and none of my members have either. Non-procreation was the point of the Church of Euthanasia. Ultimately, that was the only thing you actually had to agree to. Suicide and abortion and cannibalism and sodomy, the four pillars, those were all optional, strictly optional, approved but optional, right? And so the point is that by, by not procreating, what you were doing is you're having exponential effects. You could recycle and change your light bulbs and, and, you know, have solar panels and so on. But that only has linear effects. That only affects you and your consumption. But now imagine if you have two kids and your two kids grow up to be pro-life Christians and they wind up having huge families. They each have 10 kids apiece. And then all their kids wind up being brainwashed too and they have 10 kids apiece. Before you know it, you've created an enormous, ever-expanding exponential tree of side effects that long outlive you, which you have no control over. You'll be dead and in your grave, right? But meanwhile, your kids are still out there growing more and more and more and probably not using the right light bulbs either. And so you're fucked, right? You, you, you lost control. Ultimately, your impact was determined not by the individual consumption decisions you made in your life time, but by your procreation decisions, by your reproductive decisions. And this is why the church focused on non-procreation, because it is the single most important consumption-related decision that any human being can make. By cutting off your, your potential offspring, you're eliminating an entire exponential tree into the future of cascading consequences, which otherwise you would have no control over. This is clear. And so this is a laudable thing. This was the part of the Church of Euthanasia that was truly worth sacrificing for, gaining wider acceptance of the idea that non-procreation is a fundamentally just cause, that it is a cause that, that, can be, that is laudable from the perspective of long-term anti-humanism. The idea that if humans can't live within limits, then they shouldn't exist at all, and they won't exist ultimately. It, it takes catastrophe before governments are willing to start seriously challenging oligarchy and privilege. People are not easy to organize. It's like herding cats. It's very, very difficult to get people to focus on an external threat unless it's extremely present. And for this, tragically, we can thank our evolutionary environment. In our original evolutionary environment, long-term thinking was not optimized for because there was no long-term. Your life on the, on the savanna was likely to be brutish, nasty, and short. And so you evolved lots of stuff. You're super good at focusing on the present. That's why we love to watch sports, right? People love to watch basketball and football and stuff because it's all about getting it in the hole now now get it in the hole now yeah 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 people love that it's because it's perfectly in tune with our original evolutionary programming which was all about like kill that thing now so we have something to eat motherfucker kill it now or like here comes the lion last week the lion you know ate my brother's head off right so we should run away that kind of thinking we're super at we can definitely handle immediate external threats but long-term threats you know nebulous threats threats that are you know require critical thinking invisible gases and stuff we're not programmed for that man and so we have to change our programming you dig and so we are changing our programming humanity has been involved in changing its programming for a hundred years or more the whole civil history of civilization is effectively the history of us changing our programming but it's accelerated drastically with the advent of technology and so the to the extent that our experiments with artificial intelligence help us to change our own programming to make it something more constructive that has a decent chance of survival on this, our only home, the earth, right? Then I'm all for it. But if, if it's just going to be more like rich people saying, oh yeah, we can let the planet go to hell because we're going to be fine in our special luxury condos on Mars, then I'm not for it. I think that's just pure escapism. It's always about the hereafter. It's like, don't worry about the future because we're going to the happy place. Everybody else, don't worry about them. They're just sheep, you know, and we're going to go to the happy place. And, the, and so it doesn't matter if we fuck up the earth. Don't worry about it because we'll be fine. We'll be in our gated condos on Mars. I mean, that's, just, that's just pure escapism. You might as well substitute heaven for luxury condos on Mars and you get the same exact result. It's all about fucking the future so that the privileged minority in the present can do whatever they want without any restrictions or limits on their behavior. I'm saying that's crazy. That path can't work. That either humanity starts to have shared goals that involve long-term biological survival on earth or we're just not around you dig we're just not around this song is called the man of the future by chris corda and this has been platinum ranch episode 13 thank you so much for listening thank you chris corda for speaking with me thank you antennas for having me if you like the show please subscribe on itunes soundcloud stitcher follow on facebook tell a friend and i hope we'll be seeing you next month Oh, 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 oh,
Sure. 